praise be a weapon that conquers all anxiety. Let it rise. Let praise arise. We sing your name in the dark and it changes everything. We sing with all we are and we claim your victory. Let it
Amen, church. Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, Westgate. We are so glad that you have chosen to worship with us this morning. My name is Rob Zimmerman, and I'm the lead pastor here at Westgate, and I couldn't be more excited about our worship service this morning as we continue in our series, Who Do You Say I Am?, a study through the book of Mark. But before we get to that, I especially want to welcome you if you're a guest here with us today. As someone who's new to Westgate, you might be interested in simple information about our church and how you can get connected. The best way to do that is to take a moment to fill out the Connect card that you'll see in the pew in front of you. At the end of service, you can take that card and head out to the guest center in our main entrance and exchange it with one of our hosts for a small bag that has simple information about ways to get connected at Westgate and also a small gift for you. Even more important, if you have any questions about our church or getting connected, our hosts would love the opportunity to talk with you and help connect you with the right people. Now, regular attenders, I also want to invite you to fill out the Connect card as well and let us know if there are any ways that we could be praying for you this week. We love the opportunity to pray for our church family each week and count it a privilege to journey with you in the ways that you are seeking the Lord in prayer. Now, once that card is filled out, please drop it in one of the offering buckets later in the service. And as a reminder, you can also find the Connect card on our Westgate app, along with sermon notes and information on all the different things that are happening around the church. Be sure to check the app often as it is the best place to stay connected with Westgate. Now this morning, I'm going to kick it to Pastor Steve, live on stage, who has some very exciting things to share with you. going with 24 of our youth and some leaders uh, this June as we look to partner uh, with uh, our CMA Global Church uh, in Costa Rica. And so we are taking, taking a big team. Paul's up here with me. Uh, we're buddies, right? We've had three lunches together. This is the official sign that you're friends if you have three lunches together. But Paul is coming and is bringing his two boys with him. And so tell me, when I first kind of announced that, that we're going, why did you want to sign up? Why did you want to go with your boys? Well, uh, I guess first would be that we travel well. We've moved several times as a family, so we like traveling. That's fun. Yeah. And um, so... We travel well, and we want to serve. I have always been a big fan of how it sends people out, takes a great commission seriously. I think that is super important, and it made a big difference in my life and the different uh, trips that I've taken. So. Yeah. And now, you know, the first question typically when I, you know, do like the initial, like parent information, the first one is almost always how much is this going to cost? Right? How much is this going to cost? And so, as you're bringing, uh, you know, three of you, uh, was was that an issue for you guys? What were your thoughts behind it? And then tell us uh, the story of, uh, yeah, what God did. So, we are a single income family. So, yes, that's an issue. I have a seasonal business as well. It's right in the middle of my season. So. Uh, but we were going to do the whole 
support letters thing, and we have done that, but we were way behind the ball getting that going. So we finally got our letter to the print shop. I went up to pick up the copies of it, and when I walked in, the guy said, do you want to wait for this for a few minutes, or do you want to come back tomorrow? And I said, I need it today because we're already way behind on this. We were about three weeks behind, I think. And um, so how long can a few black and white copies take? 20 minutes, apparently. So I'm on my way to work. I needed to be there, and he's taking 20 minutes. And so I texted Jesse on the way out of the shop, let's never go here for copies again. And he gave them to me and he said, I made a few extras for you and they were in a box. So I opened the box because I wanted to see what black and white copies that take 20 minutes look like. And they were color. And so he gave us color copies. That's about a $40 donation right there. So that's cool. And there was also an envelope right on the top of the box or on top of the copies. And it had a letter in it basically explained that this moved him and that um, he has had a few hard years in recent years as a business owner and as a person and, and that he wanted to help. And there was a check in there, and I've never met this guy ever. I've never met him. There was a check in there for $3,500. So... So, and it just, it just, that's not about me. I don't write very well. It's, it's about God. It reminded me of if you would read either the Declaration of Independence or the Federalist Papers where they would refer to God as divine providence. He, uh, they saw God as intimately involved in their lives, and it was just a daily thing. They had to go through perilous things the way they lived at the founding of our country, and they just needed God to, like, be with them all the time and provide things that they could not, and so that's what this reminded me of, so. Yeah, isn't that awesome? So often we think of all the reasons why we can't do something, why I can't follow what God has asked us to do, and then yet over and over we hear stories of when we're willing to take that step of God's providing for us, his providence. And so uh, we just want to encourage you as a church family with that. And then I invite you to uh, two different steps as ways you can support the mission that we're doing here uh, this summer. First is with our team going to Costa Rica. Out on the table, when you walk out to the right, you're going to see uh, it says support a student. Uh, we've done this uh, for different trips that we've taken. Every student and leader has a card with their face, uh, uh, the, a little bio about them, and ways you can pray for them. And so I'd encourage you as a church fan, would you grab a couple of those cards? Would you put them on your nightstand or slide them in your Bible or on your fridge? And would you commit to praying for us as we go that God... Obviously, he's already preparing the way, but that he continues to do that, um, that uh, we would be obedient to the things he's called us to uh, for safety, protection, but for his will to be done. And so would love for you to uh, join us in that way. 
And the second way uh, is for our, that helps our Germany team. We have a team going uh, as well this summer to Germany with the Carries uh, to do their English camp, which we've done a whole bunch. Um, and so we have our rummage sale, which we've done several times here before, which many of you have donated. And so we're looking for donations that you bring it here, um, and then we, we tag it all, and then we sell it. We invite the community in, you to come back in, buy other people's treasures that they can buy yours. It's great. And then all the proceeds go to our Germany team and then Paul and Lydia Eriks who are interning for two months with uh, our, our team that's in Germany. And so two great ways to support the mission that's God's doing here. And so just encourage you to uh, come alongside us as we do that this summer. With that, can I invite you to stand up out of your seats? Would you turn to a neighbor, uh, say hello, greet them, tell them your name, that you're glad they're here. Rage. I don't have 
Sing it out.
Father, we just thank you so much, Lord, that we can keep saying these words and praise and worship over and over to you, Lord. It is our anthem. Lord, your word says that um, through you, you hold all things together, that you come before us and you come behind us. Lord, I know that to be true in my own life. I know so many standing here with me this morning can say the same, Lord. We trust you in every circumstance, Lord. We love you. We thank you that you can lift us, lift us up and carry us through. And Lord, that we can come to you with anything. Lord, on the mountaintops and in the valleys, Lord, we can bring our praise and our worship to you. We give our lives to you because you gave your life for us. What a praise and an honor and a privilege that is this morning to just praise your name. Lord, I ask that you would continue to be with us this morning. I pray that our worship and these words that Pastor Rob has this morning for us would resonate. And Lord, that we would come to you with all our heart. And Lord, as you promised, we will find you. I pray that this offering this morning would further your kingdom and that we would be ready to go out and to share this good news to further your kingdom as well. We love you. We pray for all these things in your heavenly name. Amen. At this time, we'd like to take up our offering. If you would like to pass the buckets um, from the inner aisles outward. Thank you. moment when you take that deep breath and then you go, my mic's not on. All right, here we go. It is good to be here with you guys this morning. How are you today? Good? Good, good. If we have not had the chance to meet, my name is Rob Zimmerman. I'm the lead pastor here at Westgate and uh, very excited that you've chosen to worship with us uh, this morning. Uh, Let me ask you a question. Anybody here have a busy week this week? A few people, yes, you feel that. Uh, I had a, a fairly interesting, busy week as well. Aside from like the normal routines of life, uh, we had a staff retreat this week, which is actually busy but fun and invigorating. Uh, our uh, church staff got together uh, for a small retreat over at the Toledo Botanical Gardens for a couple days as we we're working on our ministry plans for uh, the coming school year that starts in the fall. Uh, it was a great time together as well. Uh, we are in the ramp up for the end of the school school year. Obviously, all of you are uh, that have kids, but uh, at home especially, and we've got a a son that's going to be graduating in a few weeks, which still blows my mind that when we first came here, he was about this big, and now I have to confess he's taller than me, and it it breaks my soul. So, um, But uh, he's going to be graduating, and uh, we're very blessed as well because Rochelle's parents, Kurt and Debbie, uh, came into town and are going to be spending some time with us as we gear up for graduation. We're very 
very excited about that. But you know what that means. It means my wife starts handing out the to-do list. You got some things that you need to do, son, you know? And so I uh, started working on some of those things. And one of the things that I did yesterday that I'm a little late and behind on was cleaning out my garage. Now, does anybody here find that like through the winter, you can clean your garage really nice, but somehow throughout the winter months, little little elves or somebody gremlins actually come in and like destroy it. Does anybody have that same experience? Okay, there's a few of you, right? I'm telling you, I, that thing was a disaster and it took uh, quite a while to go through and to begin cleaning it. But as I did and, and got it all straightened up and might I say it looks marvelous this morning, but uh, there were a number of things that, uh, that needed to be fixed up, cleaned up, or as I like to say, thrown away. Uh, I, uh, I am a tosser. If I don't think I'm going to ever touch it again, I get rid of it. So, you know, there were a few broken chairs, maybe some rusted tools. I actually attacked my toolbox that I haven't touched in years, or at least I've touched it, but I just kind of throw things in it, straightened that whole thing out, but found some rusted tools, some broken tools, found broken toys from the kids that are just kind of shoved in corners and, you know, went. And so what did I do? I went and I got rid of that stuff. And let me ask you, when you find broken things, what do you typically do with them? Do you do you throw them away? How many people here are tossers? Anybody? All right. How many of you are like, I can find a way to redeem that thing? You guys are weird. All right. That's weird. I'm the kind of guy, again, that just says, toss it away. So yesterday, I loved it. I filled up my trash can to the full. I've got that thing overflowing with things that are going to the dump, things that in my mind have no value, and, uh, and they are going to be gone. Because generally, generally, not all of us, but generally, we throw things away when we find that they're broken, unredeemable, or they lose some sort of value to us. Interesting. You know, we've been going through a series together that's entitled, Who Do You Say I Am? in the book of Mark. And as we have uh, begun through this series together, we're going to continue this morning in our passage. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, uh, is where we're going to be picking up. And uh, as you know, as we've been going through this, we've uh, encountered Jesus and his baptism with John, and he has begun his earthly ministry. And uh, Jesus himself, we're going to witness this morning in our passage, one of the very first interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders uh, during his earthly ministry. And you would think that if we're talking about the religious leaders of Judaism and Jesus, God's son, that they would be on the same page with each other, that they would maybe have kind of the same mind or the same heart or the same goals, uh, you know, much like you would look at your pastoral staff and you would hope that we as the religious leaders, if you will, the church have our hearts attuned to what God desires. But what I want you to see is that as we dive into the passage this morning, is that Jesus and the religious leaders actually have two very different responses towards things that are broken. On one hand, one of them sees broken things as worthless, unredeemable, lacking in value. And the other sees broken things as having incredible value and fully redeemable. And within this account that we're going to read together this morning, we are going to continue to learn a lot 
about the heart of God and who Jesus is. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter 2. What we see as we encounter in the beginning of verse 13 is that Jesus is going to call a sinner. And he says, come follow me much like he has done previously. And it tells us here you can follow along in your Bibles, on your phones, on the screen behind me. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it says that he, being Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose up and followed him. Now, if you're following along with me in the sermon notes, letter A, you'll see that Jesus, as we begin our passage, is continuing his teaching and his healing ministry in the Galilee region. Uh, we've read in chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus went into the Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And what he was proclaiming was that the kingdom of God has come near and that they needed to repent and to be baptized. You'll see a picture of a map up here on the screen. And here is uh, the area in which we are speaking of this morning. In and around the Sea of Galilee and northern Israel, you'll see that there are all these small towns and villages that surrounded the Sea of Galilee. And this is where Jesus began his earthly ministry, traveling and looking for every opportunity to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, to preach repentance and believing in the good news of Jesus. And as we encounter chapter 1, but also here in our passage this morning, we see that Jesus is specifically in the area of Capernaum that is in the very top of that map uh, on the Sea of Galilee in the north. And it's here in Capernaum, the place that was also known as the hometown of Peter. Uh, it's one of actually the, my favorite places that I got to visit when I went to Israel. Uh, you'll see a couple pictures up here on the screen, but uh, this is an aerial view of Capernaum as it has been excavated. Now, the spaceship looking thing there towards the ocean, not natural to Jesus' time in case you needed some help. But that is a church that they actually built over the place where they believe Peter's house was, okay? And what you'll see in the middle of this picture is not only the outcropping of where people would live, but right in the middle of that, a very large synagogue. The next picture will give you kind of an interior view of that. What I loved about going here is that you can walk into this synagogue and know without a shadow of a doubt that you are standing where Jesus stood teaching people about the kingdom of God. It was, a, it was just an incredibly powerful moment in time to be able to witness and to see this. But what we see is that Capernaum was nestled up uh, against the uh, northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's here that we read in chapter 1 that Jesus begins to call his first disciples to follow him. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He calls that out to Peter and to James as they are out fishing on the sea. And they, it says that they leave everything behind and they go and follow him. And what would then begin to take place in their life is something that we could only imagine how incredible it must have been. For them to drop and leave everything... And then to begin to witness not just the incredible teaching of Jesus that people said was unlike anything they had ever heard, but they began to witness his power in the way that he would heal those who were sick. 
It tells us as we read in chapter 1 that not only was he healing the sick, but he would display his power over the demonic realm. There were these people that were full of demons, and, and they had no idea what to do with them. And yet here is Jesus who can speak to the demons inside of people and tell them, get out, and they'd be gone. They had not seen power like this before. We read that Jesus also in chapter 1 heals a leper, a man whose body was covered in leprosy, and just at speaking the words of healing over him, his body returns to normal. We also encounter right before our passage in chapter 2 that Jesus heals a man that had been paralyzed and literally tells him to get up off of his mat, to pick it up, and to walk and to go home. Powerful things. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of the disciples called from their mundane routine lives of fishing and whatever it was they did. And now the rabbi that they're following is doing things that their eyes have never beheld. And it tells us as we continue in our passage that Jesus continues to call disciples to follow him. And letter B, Jesus here calls in our passage Levi, in parentheses Matthew, uh, a tax collector to come and follow. You'll see that in Mark, but also in the book of Luke, Matthew is referred to as Levi, but he uses the name Matthew within his own gospel. It was common that people would have two names, and so as we understand this, you'll hear me talk about him as Matthew as we go along this morning. But Jesus, we see, calls Matthew, a man who was a tax collector, and the passage tells us that he was sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now, this wasn't like a tax office that you would go to, okay? It was actually set up a little bit different. Rather, it would have been a toll booth where customs would be collected on goods that were in transit. Matthew was likely working for Herod Antipas, who was the governor of the Galilee area, and as the toll booth, it seemingly sat out near the sea, was likely where they would collect tax on the fish that were being caught in the Sea of Galilee, but also other goods that were in transit from other territories and moving through the area. And it's here that Matthew, sitting in this position, it says that Jesus, as he is teaching, is walking along, and he sees him, and he says, Matthew, come follow me. And what's so crazy about this is that the call that Jesus places on him is to leave everything behind that he has in that moment and to become his disciple and follow him. And what is even crazier, let her see, is that Matthew's response was immediate. It was fast. There's not a lot of insight given as to why. Like, I've wrestled with this. Maybe it was because, really, you know, a lot of these guys had mundane, like you think of Peter and James, they're just kind of fishermen, and they would look at following a rabbi as like, that is the thing to do. And if you get called, you get up and you go. Maybe that's the case as well for Matthew. But I suspect that as he sat there day after day in his toll booth, there in Capernaum, hearing about what Jesus was doing, likely seeing some of the miracles that he was performing, that Jesus comes and says, I've chosen you, come after me, that he is willing to leave what would have been a very lucrative job for him in order to go and to follow Jesus, leaving everything behind. It's striking that he would quickly abandon everything that he had to follow Jesus, but what I actually find more striking is that Jesus would even call Matthew to follow him in the first place. 
Because as we continue to read in the story, we get a deeper picture and understanding of how tax collectors were actually viewed within the society of that day. What happens here in the passage is that Jesus calls Matthew, and then we read Roman numeral uh, number two in your notes, is that Matthew then invites Jesus and his disciples to a formal banquet in their home. In Mark chapter two, verse 15, it says this, that that as he reclined, uh, Jesus, at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, the reason we believe and know that this was a banquet, this was wasn't just like, hey, you want to come over for dinner, I'll order up some Chick-fil-A, right? It was a banquet that was actually set up to, to honor Jesus. It says that he reclined at the table. The Greek word that is used for reclining helps us and clues us off that they would have had a low table that was set up with pillows all around as a way for them to have this nice formal dinner and gathering where people could come and honor Jesus. You see, for Matthew, he recognizes that this is a pivotal moment in his life. And he is excited about the call that Jesus has placed on his life. And so it says that he calls all of his friends and all of his people to come around and to gather in his home so that they could see who he would be following and experience and even celebrate what was taking place in his own life. But the passage tells us that those who gathered around were people that typically were not viewed, viewed as favorable in that society. Letter A, we see that the party included many who were considered to be unscrupulous riffraff and scoundrels. You see, a tax collector, like Matthew was, was hated by the Jewish population to the very core of their being because they were known for their dishonesty, but also for their exorbitant surcharges that they would charge to the people. You see, a tax collector, the way that they would make their money is that they would collect taxes for Rome, but then they would also put these surcharges on it in order to make money for themselves. But what this created was a very corrupt system of people that took advantage of that and made exorbitant amounts of money uh, and putting harsh uh, fines and, and requirements on the people as they paid their taxes. And so they were completely hated by the people, not just because of Rome, but because they were literally stealing from them. And they were so hated that the Mishnah, which was the oral, uh, oral law that was uh, a supplement to the written law, even prohibited the receiving of offerings from a tax collector since the money was presumed to be gained illegally. As well, we see that rabbis during that day also went as far as to say it was permissible to lie to tax collectors in order to protect your belongings because you knew that they were ripping you off. As well, you found that within that society, if a tax collector were actually home, that everything in your home would become unclean and it would require some sort of ceremony in order to return to a state of cleanliness or righteousness. The people hated tax collectors. And this is who Matthew was. Matthew was that person who ripped off the people for his own good, who collected heavy taxes for Rome. But even worse, some believe that Matthew himself as well was a Levite. And if true, what this meant is that he would have been especially hated by his countrymen as a Jew. 
not just because he was a traitor, but also because he should have pursued a religious vocation as a Levite, working in the temple, working with the priesthood, but rather he chose a despised one instead that would work against his very own people. And so now you have a picture. How could Jesus call someone like that to follow him? In our own minds, in our own day and age, it doesn't seem to make sense. And not only Matthew is here throwing this party for Jesus, but all of his friends who are tax collectors, and it says sinners. In other words, translate sinners, people of questionable moral behavior are gathered together around Jesus. He is interacting with them, building relationship with them. And what would happen next? Letter B, the religious leaders. The religious leaders, it tells us, also followed to see what Jesus was doing. In Mark chapter 2, the very beginning of verse 16, it says that the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and collectors, they saw that he was eating with the tax collectors and sinners, and it bothered them to their core. The Pharisees were considered to be the religious elite of the day. Amongst all of the religious people in Judaism, they were the most popular with the general populace within Israel and within Judaism. And with that popularity came uh, uh, definitely a puffing up in their own hearts and their own minds as the religious leaders, the one who were, had the uh, corner on uh, the teaching of the law, of helping people to understand how to live a righteous life that would be pleasing to God. And with that popularity and that puffed upness, it also created an issue when Jesus comes on the scene, because here comes Jesus, this new rabbi, capturing the attention of the people, capturing their hearts. As they say, we've never heard anyone teach like this. It would have struck at the heart of the religious leaders. As they said, look at the miracles that he's doing. You can feel the jealousy boiling up within them. I can remember maybe you've had an experience in your life where you've had like a friend group and somebody's coming from the outside and you experience that like moment of jealousy, like they're taking the attention. I can remember uh, in youth group as a, as a young man, uh, it was a smaller youth group. I kind of grew up in the church, and so I had my people that were there. And the guy who eventually came, my best friend and my best man at my wedding, I remember the day that he walked into our youth group, he came off of the street with one of the girls that every single guy in our youth group was like, we want to date that girl, right? And so he comes in, and let me tell you something, we couldn't stand Rick. We were like, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? And not only was he gaining the attention of the girls, but like all the youth leaders were fawning over him, like, oh, look at how great he is. And I'm like, what are we chopped liver? right? There's a feeling inside that jealousy. Hey, wait a second. We're the center of attention. Can you feel what the Pharisees would feel with the power that they had over the people to see Jesus come in and now all of the crowds are following him? And what would have gone through their own hearts as the crowds swarm in mass they're hungry to hear his teaching because they've never heard anything like it. They want to be healed of their sickness and infirmities, and Jesus can do it. People want to witness his power and be a part of the crowd and see the spectacle. And so you can see what's happening. The Pharisees are feeling jealous. They're no longer the popular people in town. There's a new guy on the block, and he is grabbing all the attention, but even more, and in more ways than one, not only has Jesus grabbed the popularity card, 
but he is contradicting their teachings and their way of worshiping God that they had set out. And this no doubt was creating a problem for them. And we see that here within this passage because it tells us, letter C, that the Pharisees were dismayed with how a respected rabbi could dine with such scum. Literally, the word when translated from Greek, speaking of tax collectors and sinners, can be translated as scum, the lowest of the low. How could Jesus do this? They couldn't understand how a rabbi growing in influence and popularity would possibly Possibly be found dining, interacting with, befriending the most despicable people in society, especially to the Jews. And you see, here's another thing. Meals in that culture were important social rituals in the ancient world. So much so that people would normally only eat with people that were of a similar social status. In Judaism, a Pharisee would never go to the home of a common Israelite, a common common Jewish person. They would never go to their home because they wouldn't be sure if the food had been prepared properly. It could make them unclean. And so they would only stick with their people. He would especially, a Pharisee would never eat with a defiled person or a sinful tax collector. And the Pharisees expect that Jesus, as a respected rabbi who is growing in popularity, would act in the same exclusive manner to keep himself set apart and as righteous as they were. And it's here that we begin to catch a glimpse of how the Pharisees view broken things as related to how Jesus views them. You know, our denomination was founded by a man by the name of A.B. Simpson. And A.B. Simpson was a man that uh, was considered to be an up-and-coming, like when he was young, he was considered to be just a phenomenal teacher. People flocked and loved to hear this guy speak. People knew that he was going to do big and great things. And as his life began to unfold, he eventually found himself uh, as the pastor of a very prestigious church in New York City. It was the 13th Street Presbyterian Church. And when he got there, it was a church of very wealthy, very well-to-do, very proper Christian men and women. And he made, from my understanding, one of the highest salaries that a pastor of that time could actually make. He was doing really well for himself. But let me tell you something about A.B. Simpson. A.B. Simpson found himself in New York City because he had a passion to reach lost people. And he saw that what was happening in that time is that there were so many immigrants coming from overseas, passing through Ellis Island, and that there was an opportunity to reach people that did not know Jesus, people that were coming to our country that had very little, that some didn't know the language, that there were others who found themselves very poor and much in need, but not just physically in need spiritually. And there was a passion that was growing within A.B. Simpson to begin a movement to reach reach people that did not know Jesus, but this did not sit well with his really well-to-do church, the 13th Street Presbyterian Church in New York City. Because when they saw these immigrants, they saw people that were not like them. They saw people that didn't look like them, did not dress like them, did not have the wealth that they had, and they wanted nothing to do with them. And as you look and you read the history of the CNMA and A.B. Simpson's life, what you see is that A.B. Simpson made the decision to give up this very prominent position as a pastor in a prominent church because he knew that God's call on his life 
was not to take care of those rich people in that church, but to reach people that did not know Jesus Christ. Because he viewed broken people, not as those who were to be discarded, but as people that could be redeemed. As we look at this passage, that helps us to begin to even still see what was going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees viewed broken people, people who were not as righteous as they were, as castoffs, of people who lacked value. And yet Jesus looks at them and sees incredible value. And I want to pause and ask you a question this morning. Who are the people in your life that you see as those who are broken, despicable, maybe even worthless or lacking in value that you would think maybe we could all do without? Maybe it has to do with somebody that you think is in a different status in life like A.B. Simpson's church and there was this separation that took place. But maybe it's people who think differently than you politically. Maybe it's people who struggle with different sins like drug or alcohol addiction. Maybe those people are people in the LGBTQ plus or transgender community. Maybe it's people that hate you because you're a Christian. Maybe in our culture, it's people that you see are eroding our values. People that do harm to others. Maybe it's people that have hurt you or wronged you. But I want you to pause and ask yourself that question this morning. Who are the people in your life that you see as broken, lacking in value, and that you kind of want nothing to do with. And maybe in the quietness of your heart, you would think, I wish they would just go away. Can I be honest with you? The more I watch the evil in our world today, the harder it is to fight hatred growing in my heart towards people that don't love God, but actually hate God. The more I watch the way that our world is seeking to influence every aspect of culture and even infringing on the rights of people and the way that they worship, it is so easy to allow hatred to find its way into my heart. It is a constant battle to keep my heart in the right place. Maybe you would feel that way as well. And as well, when people hurt me, I find myself becoming more and more cynical as to whether or not I actually believe that they're redeemable. It feels as though the polarizing times that we're living in in our culture are really beginning to have an effect even on the church and people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. The hate that is rampant in our world culture today is easily, quietly, and quickly slipping into our lives and into the church in the way that we respond to people that don't love Jesus and at times even those who do. And this morning, as we think about those people, whether it's people that we know personally or it's people out in our world and culture, as we think about who those people are in our lives, I want you to wrestle with this tension while we continue to look at Jesus' differing response to broken people that the Pharisees rejected. In your notes, Roman numeral number three, we're going to take a look at how Jesus responds to the Pharisees' disdain 
with a pointed illustration that would cut to the heart. And my prayer this morning is that it would cut straight to our hearts. Mark chapter 2 verse 17 says this, when Jesus heard it, when he overheard the conversation happening between the religious leaders and his disciples, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Now, I, I had the opportunity in March with uh, Rochelle and our kids to travel down to Florida for spring break. And as we were going to spring break, right before we were going to leave uh, to go down there, uh, the day before, my daughter Gracie got sick. And uh, she got sick. She woke up that morning. She began to tell us, Daddy, I've got a sore throat. Rochelle was off at work. And, and she's like, it's the worst sore throat I've ever had. And she's not typically dramatic. She's kind of a tough kid with this stuff. And so uh, I was like, you know what, I'm going to take her to the doctor. So I take her to the doctor, go through the tests, you know, swab her throat and uh, the drama of all that. And then they tell us she has strep throat. And I'm like, oh, that's great. We're leaving tomorrow. But the doctor, what do they do? They say, okay, well, we've had about 35 other kids already this morning in a few, you know, three, four hours come through, have the same thing. They prescribe some medication. They said in 24 hours, she won't be contagious. And then everything is good. She'll get better. And you guys should be fine on your trip. And I'm thinking, this is fantastic. I love how this works. You're sick, you go to the doctor, you get some medicine, everything's better, right? And then I start thinking, but there's like four more of us that have been exposed to this. And so, and I'm thinking to myself, it's going to happen. And so we get, you know, I'm talking to the doctor there and I kind of look at the doctor and I know what the answer is going to be. But I'm like, what are the chances we could get another dose of that stuff? And they're like... Uh-uh, <laughs> you know, because you're not sick. And if you're not sick, you don't get the medicine because you don't need it. And then I worked out a deal and said, hey, you know what? When somebody eventually gets sick, can I just call you and you like wire it to us? And they said, sure thing. And no doubt, the very next day driving, Riley looks at me and says, dad, I've got the worst sore throat I've ever had. And so, you know, doctor followed through, did what they did. But here's the deal. You go to the doctor when you're sick. You get the, what you need when you're sick. Sick people go to doctors, not well people. And this is what Jesus says. Letter A, sick people need doctors. It's the sick who need healing. It's the broken who need restoring. It's the unvalued who need to have their value restored. And what does Jesus say as he speaks to the Pharisees, recognizing the judgment that they're placing on him for associating with these sinners? He says, look, I'm the doctor. I am the one that has come for those who are in need. I have come to bring healing and restoration to them. And what it reveals to us, letter B, is that God's whole purpose in sending Jesus is to save sinners. It is the story of the entirety of Scripture from beginning to end, that in the very beginning when Adam and Eve sinned against God, sin came into the world and along with it, the curse of death that would not only affect every human being, but the entire world order, the Bible tells us that God has been working from that time to bring about a place where he can redeem lost and broken people. And this is who Jesus is. It's the reason that he's come. God sent his son Jesus into the world to die on a cross 
cross so that if we would place our faith in him, him having paid the price for our sin, if we would place our faith in him, that we could be restored as broken people to a right relationship with God. John 3.16 tells us that so beautifully, but we often skip the second verse that I think speaks even more powerfully. Verse 17 says what? It tells us that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved. In other words, the very heart of Jesus is not to just look at broken, sinful people and to see that there's a lack of value like I might when I'm looking at my tools or broken things in the garage and just throw them away. He didn't come to condemn broken people and say you're worthless and you have no value. But he came to restore that what was broken and to bring salvation. Letter C, we also see that not only was God's purpose to save sinners, but we see that the self-righteousness of the Pharisees has completely blinded them to this very heart of God. They were so puffed up in themselves that they couldn't even see the purposes of God. And I've asked myself this question, what is it that created this? How does a person get to this place where you completely miss the purposes of God in redeeming and restoring broken people? And I honestly believe that where it came from was an incorrect view of God. We've said that in the book of Mark, what Mark is doing is he begins in chapter 1, verse 1, and says abundantly, very clearly that Jesus is the Messiah, and he is now going to spend the whole of his gospel proving that to us, helping us to understand who Jesus is, because he knows That in order for us to worship God rightly and to honor him with our hearts and our lives, we must have a correct view of who he is. I believe that for the Pharisees, their self-righteousness was created by an incorrect view of God. Believing that God is only pleased by those who are morally upright and pure. If you're righteous in yourself, then you're in the end. If you're not righteous, if you're morally bankrupt, then you're on the outs. Good for nothing, worthless, lacking in value to the kingdom of God. But Jesus... Jesus' response sets the record straight. His teaching is vastly different from the Pharisees. He wants people to know that God loves the world. He loves his creation, and he desires that none would perish. And as we consider the vast difference between Jesus and the religious leaders and how they view broken things and broken people, it begs us to ask ourselves some really hard questions. And I want you to think about these with me this morning. Letter A, it begs us to ask ourselves the question, do we see sinners the same way that Jesus sees them? And I want to ask you this question. Who's that person in your mind or that group of people that you go, yeah, those people There's something in my heart against them. They lack value. They lack worth in my heart. Do they have value in the eyes of God? I think of John chapter 8 where Jesus encounters a woman that is caught in adultery. Such a powerful passage. Passage tells us that the religious leaders 
still having these issues with Jesus, trying to catch him, trying to make him look bad in front of the people, find this woman who was in the act of committing adultery, and they take her and they throw her down at the feet of Jesus. And you know what they say to him is completely right, that she deserved to be stoned. The law said that somebody that did that, they should be stoned to death. And they say, Jesus, let's get to it. We caught her. And what does it say that Jesus does? Does he pick up the stone and start throwing? Does he go, yep, that's what the law says? And the passage actually tells us we don't know what he wrote, but he gets down and he begins writing with his finger on the ground. People have surmised that maybe he started writing out the sins of the Pharisees. What we do know is that he stands up and he looks at the religious leaders and says, whoever of you here is without sin, pick up a stone and you can get started. And one by one, each of them walks away. And what I love about this passage isn't, isn't that. It was like Jesus had a drop the mic moment with them, right? But what I really love about the passage is what he does next. Is that he gets down with this very broken woman who is at the lowest point of her life. And he tells her the value that she has to the kingdom of God and that God loves her dearly. He gives her worth and he gives her value even in her sin and calls on her to go and to sin no more. You know what's crazy about this passage? It doesn't tell you what she did. She may have gone back to her life of sin. The crazy thing is Jesus probably knew what she was going to do. And yet, he still wanted her to know the value and worth that she has to God. Do we see sinners the same way that Jesus sees them? If they have value to God, then why do they not have value to us? Rather than stand in judgment, how can we love them in the fashion of Christ so that one day they might know Jesus? It's the reason as a church that we say we are a Jesus-centered community that is known and that wants to be known for intentionally sharing God's love with our neighbors and the nations. By the way, that statement does not just mean the people that are shined up and polished and have it all together. It means broken people just like you and me. Our desire my heart's desire is that we would be a church that has the heart of Jesus for broken people because we know that Jesus wants to share with them his love and we know what their end is without him. It's the reason that last week we baptized 24 people here in this service. It was a beautiful thing to witness and to behold and to hear the stories and to hear the testimonies of what God was doing in people's life. People like Daniel who would stand up here in front of us and share his brokenness and the way that he had been in jail and gone through so many different things in his life, completely broken, but who could now say, I once was lost, but Jesus changed everything when I gave my heart to him. 
a person like Abby who could share with us that she was so angry with God that she would yell and scream and, and curse his name, and yet she could still feel the warmth of his love and his embrace, and because of it, she surrendered her heart to him. That's the Jesus that we have. That's the Jesus that our world desperately needs in church family. We must see sinners, even the worst in this world, not as the enemy, but as those who are deeply loved by God, and we are his messengers. Have you considered how God has called you to go and to be his messenger, to take that message into the world? But even more important as well, letter B, we must ask ourselves this question. Are we even blind to our own sinfulness? You see, the Pharisees, the problem with them is that when Jesus told his little story, I don't think they realized one iota that he was putting them to school. Think about what he said to them. It is the sick who need a doctor, not those who are well. I have come to call the sinful, not the righteous. Think about that for a second. What does the Bible say? There is no one righteous, not even one. They couldn't even pick up that as Jesus was talking to them, that they were in desperate need in the same exact way the tax collectors were. They looked at themselves as though they were righteous. They prided themselves in their self-righteousness and the way that they lived perfect according to their moral law. And because of it, they couldn't even see how sick they, they were themselves and how desperately in need of a savior they were. They considered themselves to be the healthy, righteous teachers of the law, and it would have done them well to read the words of Psalm 53, verses 2 through 3, that quote the passage out of uh, Romans that I just quoted, which says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt because there is none who does good, not even one. What Jesus calls us to as well in this passage is to have a clear picture, not of just who he is, but also who we are. That we as well are sinners desperately in need of the grace of God. And because of that, we are on the same plane with every man that walks this earth, all in need of his saving. Let us see, I believe that we also need to ask ourselves the question, have we truly considered the destructive nature of self-righteousness in our lives. That when we look at ourselves and we begin to separate ourselves from the rest of the world and other people and we think of them as less than and us better and we want to push them off, there are some really destructive things that take place when we do that. The first thing is this, is it literally separates us from the heart of God and breaks our relationship with him. Because if the very purposes of God were to send his son to broken people, then who are we to reject them? And if we do, we separate ourselves from his purposes. But secondly, not only do we harm ourselves, we also then exclude other people from the kingdom of God. And God could use our testimony and our lives and our love to soften the hearts of those who do not love him now. 
So who are the people in your life? Who are the people out in the world? What are the categories you're thinking of this morning where you're allowing hatred to kind of seep in towards those who aren't like you? And would you hear the words of Jesus this morning saying, I came to die for them as much as I came to die for you. And will you, rather than build a wall between yourself and them, go to them and share the love of my son, Jesus? Last question this morning, will we humble ourselves enough to confess our own self-righteousness and allow God to transform our hearts from the inside out? That we would be right with God and have a correct view of him and that we would see lost people correctly as those that are in the same camp as we are and that we have a message to share with them so that they can be restored. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, that um, you have proven to us so clearly in your word that it doesn't matter how far we have gone from you or how broken we are, that you love us. You love us so much that you sent your son Jesus into this world to leave the throne room of heaven and to come and be one of us, to die, to pay the price for our sin so that we could be made right with you. Thank you for loving us, God, as broken people. And help us to worship you rightly, that not only we live our lives as a thankful offering for what you have done for us, but that, God, you would be honored by the way that we live and the way that we view and see broken people in this world as those who are still dearly loved by you and with whom you desire for us to go and share the good news of your son. Sow that passion in us because of who Jesus is and what he has done. We're gonna come to a time of communion this morning and worshiping the Lord and remembering his sacrifice on the cross for our sin. And one of the things that I love to do before we come to a time of taking the Lord's Supper is to allow time for us to reflect in our own hearts and to just confess our sin before the Lord and to say, you know, Lord, if there's anything in me that is wrong that I need to get right with you, I want to confess it and I want to allow you to change my heart and transform me. And so we're going to sing a song together that we did over the Easter season. It's entitled Remembrance beautiful song that reminds us of all that Jesus has done for us. And as we do this, you can sing with all of your heart and worship to the Lord, or you can sit there in silent prayers. The rest of us sing doing business with the Lord, but let's use this as a time to remember what Jesus has done for us and to offer the fullness of our hearts to him. Let's sing together.
you are so good. Far better than we deserve. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember his sacrifice together. Hmm. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's take it together in worship of our Savior. stand with us and let's close with a song of worship giving our hearts to the Lord. Cry. 
words are sung day and night around the throne of heaven, singing praise and glory to God for his holiness and his goodness. And I cannot wait for the day when I get to stand and worship with the angels around the very throne of God singing those same words. But until that day comes, I want more people in this world to know my Savior and my Jesus who has shown the depth of his love by being the Holy One of Heaven, who would allow himself to become the wretched in the eyes of the world to save us. And so church family, you have a commission that God has given you to see the people in this world that we wanna think are different than us and remember that they're just like us. And that God has called you to go out to share the good news of his son Jesus with them, to not hate them, to love them so that they would know him. So church family, go with that commission this week. Go into this world and share Jesus' love, not just with the words, but the way that you live and the way that you love others. As we close our service this morning, if there are any prayer needs that you have, anything that you would love prayer for, our prayer team uh, is here this morning. We would love the opportunity to pray with you. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you're like, today's the day, come forward. We would love that opportunity to pray with you. But church family, God bless you. Go and serve the Lord. Make his name great this week. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday.